Notice, for instance, what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that is Peter, or I follow Christ. Paul asks in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Look at chapter 3, the latter part of verse 3. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Look at verse 21. So let no one boast in men. And in chapter 4, verse 19. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For he says in verse 18, some are arrogant. I said to you last time that in this church at Corinth, there were those who were arrogant. They were divisive. They were causing factions. And because of that, Paul was greatly concerned. And he uses much of first and even some in Second Corinthians to speak to these professing believers that they ought not to have divisions at all. Now, when Paul says that, he actually says something in 1 Corinthians that is utterly shocking regarding the matter of divisions. For while at the same time that he says there are not to be divisions in the church at Corinth, he actually even speaks to and in some cases commands and certainly alludes to the fact that God Himself in the church is at times dividing the flock. Did you hear what I said? There are times when in 1 Corinthians and of course in other places in our New Testament that God Himself is seeking to divide the flock. Now how can, on the one hand, Paul say, I abhor divisions, I don't like them, they are not to be occurring in the church, and yet at the same time, Paul, being used himself and speaking on behalf of God, and God certainly threw Paul as a mouthpiece, saying that there will be divisions in the church. There will be a dividing. This is what appears on the surface to be an amazing contradiction. For in all of these passages, and just a few of them that I've just shared with you, Paul says there ought not to be these divisions. There ought not to be these factions. 
And yet, from our own reading of 1 Corinthians this morning, we will find that at least in three places, God brings the hammer of His judgment down upon those where God Himself seeks to divide the flock in such a way that there are those who are proven to be false and those who are proven to be true. There is a dividing. And God is the one who does the dividing. He alone, by the way, is the only one who can do the dividing because He knows the human heart. He knows who is false and who is true. And this morning, as both a preparation and as a warning for this kind of dividing. I want to share with you three passages, actually a combination of several chapters, but giving you three warnings from 1 Corinthians about God dividing the flock, that is, dividing them between the true and the false, between the genuine and the disingenuine. This is an amazing look at 1 Corinthians, and it is for us an excellent preparation for the Lord's Supper. It's an opportunity for all of us to be warned about whether or not we are partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. You have heard, no doubt, that there are warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And like the book of Hebrews, there are warning passages in 1 Corinthians, and I want to show you where they are. Look in your Bibles, first of all, at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll go through a little bit of chapter 5 and also into a little bit of chapter 6. And so you can combine these two, two chapters, knowing, of course, that originally there weren't chapter divisions in our Bibles. And so we'll look at chapters 5 and 6, or at least a portion of them, and we'll go through the first warning that Paul gives for those in the church at Corinth and what they're being warned about. Let's call this first warning the warning about sexual immorality. The warning about sexual immorality. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, these words, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, unbelievers. What is it? For a man has his father's wife. Sexual involvement probably with a stepmother is what Paul is intending here. In verse 2, he ties it right into this issue of their divisiveness, their factiousness, their pride. And he says, verse 2, And regarding this sexual immorality, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Do you see God's dividing? You see His winnowing? His separation? Yes, there are divisions in the church, and Paul abhors those divisions. He abhors the arrogance. He abhors the factions. 
He detests the idea that they are not experiencing genuine unity, but right in the midst of Paul teaching them against factions in the church, God, through the apostolic witness of Paul, through his leadership, through what he's about to teach them, to command them, God himself is doing the dividing. He's doing the separation. Let him who has done this, let him who is involved in unrepentant sexual immorality be removed from among you. That's, that's division. That's separation. That's a command to take someone away from your midst as a church. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, when the church is gathered and my spirit is present, even though Paul was not there at that moment, he's giving instructions as though he were there. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5.5 is a, a very, very stunning verse, isn't it? A person is to be separated away from the flock, to be disentangled from the group, and will be, in fact, given over to Satan himself for the destruction of their flesh, so that if they are genuinely a believer in Jesus Christ, having been caught in sexual immorality, that ultimately through the process of the destruction of their flesh, their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Apparently the Corinthians were boasting of such a thing. And you say, how could they at all be boasting about someone's sexual immorality? Well, it may be that they were attempting, wrongly of course, to exalt in some gravely mistaken understanding of the grace of God. Maybe they were assuming since they were so filled by God's grace, he calls them saints in chapter 1. He says they are filled with grace and apparently in some majorly mistaken way they've assumed that someone could be involved in something that even the pagans aren't doing and somehow God's grace would cover it all. And instead they become arrogant. And he says in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. They're referring, of course, to the sexual immorality to which he is pointing, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Apparently Paul had written them an earlier letter, this 1 Corinthians letter is probably 2 Corinthians and there is probably even a 3 Corinthians and what we now know, of course, as 2 Corinthians, maybe even a 4th letter. The other two, not inspired, 
First and Second Corinthians being inspired, and he says, I wrote to you in my letter, and obviously previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And of course, he qualifies immediately what he means. Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, not unbelievers. They're sexually immoral because that is their nature. I'm telling you not to associate with professing Christians in the fellowship if they are sexually immoral. He says, I'm not telling you that you can't associate with the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. That is, if you weren't associating with them. Verse 11, but now I'm writing you not to associate, here's the key, with anyone who bears the name of brother. Your translation may say a so-called brother. Someone who's, who's making a claim who says that they're a Christian, someone who is a part of the body, someone who who says they're in the kingdom. And he's saying, I'm telling you not to associate with a so-called brother who is actually a sexually immoral person and who is denying by his very actions the reality of what his lips profess. Now this is a warning. This is a grave warning. This is the first of these so-called warning passages in 1 Corinthians. And here's what he says. If he is guilty of sexual or immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Not having even table fellowship with such a one. Table fellowship was sweet, just like it is for us in the church of Jesus Christ in this age. It's sweet because it's not just the partaking of food, it's the meal itself which brings us together. And as we partake of the meal, we are celebrating our common union with Christ. We're celebrating our common holiness under the Lordship of Christ. And if someone is coming to table fellowship and they're professing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and yet they're involved in sexual immorality, Paul says, I am telling you that God is dividing the flock among you. You must separate from Him. You must, in fact, put Him out. And you should not even have table fellowship with such a one. Why? Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Unbelievers. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? There is a judgment. There is a sifting. There is a dividing. It's not based on sinfulness. It's not based on pride. It's not based on arrogance. And that, what, that is what Paul is dealing with when he's talking about the sinful divisions in the church. But when it comes time for there to be a collective holiness in the church, and someone who professes holiness with their lips, but who denies that holiness with their lives, they are to be judged, and they're to be judged by the majority, and they're to be judged by apostolic command, as God is doing it through Paul here. He says, verse 13, God judges those outside. God will deal with unbelievers. Now here's the command, purge the evil person from among you. 
Put them out. Purge them from your midst. Disfellowship them. Notice what he says in chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, that is, all things that are not specifically forbidden by the law, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Uh, Apparently uh, some kind of axiomatic phrase that the Corinthians themselves were spouting to Paul, and yet Paul says God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The command, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. He's giving them reasons why they should purge a man who is involved in such sin because he says, do you not understand that as the church, as the body, as a collective whole, that when a person is sexually immoral, he's joining his immorality to Christ himself because Christ is the head of the church. And when you allow this to occur... And when you even apparently arrogantly and pridefully rejoice in it as though somehow in a misplaced way the grace of God is exalted because grace is greater than our sin, you are defaming the body of Christ, the headship of Christ, the lordship of Christ by allowing this sexual immorality to occur in your midst. I'm telling you, purge the man from among you. Flee sexual immorality. You can't join Someone who's immoral immoral to Christ? You're joining Christ and the body of immorality together, and that simply cannot be. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He's already referred in chapter 3 to the temple, First. Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple? This is the church, this is Corinth, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The church, the body of Christ, in its local expression in Corinth, just like the local expression here at the Bible Church of Little Rock, we are the body of Christ. And if someone is among us and they're involved in sexual immorality, they're joining that immorality to Christ and they're making a mockery of the temple of God. We are God's temple. Not this building, not four walls and a roof, but we as the professing members of the body of Christ, if any among us, even as an individual, joins themselves to this immoral relationship to someone like a prostitute, we are in essence saying we're prostituting the body of Christ. We are all responsible to be holy members of the body. We're God's temple. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We're the temple of God. Every one of us is individuals who make up the collective whole. We're to watch out for sexual immorality. We're to flee it. 
so that we are indeed as a collective whole glorifying God in our bodies because we are God's temple. Flee sexual immorality. That's the first warning. The second, let's call it spiritual idolatry. Spiritual idolatry. The Apostle Paul in chapter 8 speaks of this very thing. Verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. What does he mean? He goes on to explain. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. In other words, Paul is saying there really isn't a such thing as a, a genuine idol, a real idol. And there is no God but one. We're monotheists. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, small g, and many lords, small l, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. What's he saying? There were apparently those in Corinth who had come to faith in Christ. They professed Christ. And yet, somehow, some of them believed that potentially they could worship both Christ and their past idols. And Paul says, remember this, there's only one God, and He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and there really aren't idols. So if anybody is tempted to do that, know that there really aren't genuine idols out there. They don't exist. They're not real. But, guess what? Even though they're not real, people still nevertheless worship them. And that's a problem. The worship is real. The idols are not. And when they worship different gods, you cannot worship a multiplicity of gods, a multiplicity of lords, and Jehovah God, Yahweh God, at the same time. You can't do that. That's spiritual idolatry. He says in verse 7, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, uh, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You know that there aren't really idols. And he'll even say in chapter 10 that there are those who continue to eat meat that they know has prior been sacrificed to an idol. And since we know that idols aren't really anything, the meat itself is in that sense not tainted. It's not contaminated, contaminated as though it is the product, the very product of some kind of evil purpose for which the meat itself has in its very substance an idol-forming habit. It's not true. It's just a piece of meat. Don't worry about it. However, 
If you were in a syncretistic culture like they are, and for us we certainly are, and if there are things for which they have the least association with the idol worship of the age, and it is against the worship of Jesus Christ, if it in any way denies the reality of our worship of Jesus Christ, what is Paul's teaching? What is Paul's command? Then do away with it. Don't go there. Don't eat it. Your unknowledgeable brothers, those who might be weak in understanding these things, will see you doing something because you possess knowledge and their consciences, not knowing the differences, not knowing that there really isn't an idol, not realizing that meat itself, even if it's sacrificed to an idol, is nothing but a piece of meat and it's to be consumed and it gives nourishment to your body. It's really not a big deal in one sense because there aren't really any idols at all except for this. The idols are real in the heart of the individual. And their conscience is weak. And it can be defiled. And so, if you have heretofore been going to an idol temple in your pagan days, and you've been worshiping them, and yet you've been delivered, you've been converted to Jesus Christ, and you're only going to worship Christ as the Lord of your life, put away all spiritual idolatry from the past. And if it takes you not eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol, then so be it. Don't place a stumbling block in your spiritual brother's way. And by all means, he says in chapter 10, look at chapter 10. He says, by all means, verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You see, it's just a piece of meat. Don't raise any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Lord created the meat that you're eating, even if someone's sacrificed it to an idol. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If some unbelieving person, some idolater, invites you over for a, for a meal... Don't ask any questions about where the meat has come from. Was it sacrificed in an idol temple? Don't ask, he says. Don't ask, don't tell. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, what's his immediate answer? Here's the command, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Apparently, there's a believer who is sitting with you also to be hosted by the unbeliever. And the unbeliever brings in the meat and presumably goes into another room to prepare some more meat. And one believer says to another, you know where that meat has come from, don't you? No, I don't. It's been sacrificed to an idol. And you perceive that your brother is telling you that by that very revelation that it has been sacrificed to an idol, that his conscience is not going to allow him to eat such a thing. And what should your response be as a fellow believer? I'm not going to do it then. I'm not going to eat it. Better to offend the unbelieving host than to offend a fellow brother in Christ. I'm not going to eat it. Now that I know that it's been sacrificed to an idol, I will not do it. 
I will not do it. That's the context, of course, of verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, you say, but we don't have temples today and uh, we don't have this sort of idolatry that I'm uh, seeing this on my mantle and I'm bowing down to this wooden figurine and I don't understand how this applies to me. Here's how it applies. Look back at chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. This is, this is a warning. This is the second warning of, sexual, or of uh, spiritual idolatry for us today. Verse 1, chapter 10, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that, that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with the children of Israel, whom Paul has just given as an example, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why was God not pleased with them? Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Here's verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The idolatry that Paul is referring to definitely has an Old Testament context, and he definitely says that there are examples for us, and what might those examples be? It's not just bowing down in front of some golden calf. It's the idea of drunkenness, and it's the idea of sexual immorality, and it's the idea of grumbling, and so much more. And so, what are some of the spiritually idolatrous things that we might practice? Grumbling? Sexual immorality? The desiring of evil, verse 6? putting Christ to the test in a word pride pride anything that diverts my attention away from humbly submitting to Jesus Christ can for me become such a habit of idolatry anything and so there's a second real warning right here. In fact, so real, look at chapter 12, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. If a person is trying to serve two gods at the same time, 
God, big G, capital G, the God of the Bible, Yahweh God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time attempts to serve themselves or they attempt to serve whatever it may be, money, sex, power, position, whatever it may be, the Bible says you cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and you will despise the other. So, sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. Notice what he says in chapter 10, verse 14. Just as he said, flee sexual immorality, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's why he gives those Old Testament examples. He says, verse 15, I speak as to sensible or logical people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he uses an amazing example of the Lord's Supper. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Just as he said, if you're joined to a prostitute, if you're sexually immoral, you're joining that harlot to Christ because we're the body of Christ. So he says here, if you're involved in idolatry from which you need to flee, is the cup of blessing that we, that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? If you're involved in spiritual idolatry, whatever it is that you worship, You are joining your idolatrous actions and heart to Christ. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, look at the corporate dynamic for us. Because there is one bread, we, we collectively who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're together, we're one body, we're all partaking of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, verse 18, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Yes. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. If you're involved in spiritual idolatry, whatever it is, and if that's the habit of your life, this is the warning from God's Word. You are joining in your participation in the Lord's Supper, your very idolatry to the table, and it's actually offering something to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? You see the serious command? You can't involve in your life the worship of Jesus Christ, and then participate in idolatry with some other would-be made-up God. That's why 
He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership, what fellowship, what association has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, a name for Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. There he says it again. We're the temple of the living God. We're the church of Jesus Christ. How can we join ourselves as a body to Jesus Christ as our head? And we're his temple if we are at the same time associating, participating with pagan idols, whatever those idols may be in our 21st century age. Whatever they are. Survey your life. What idols are you pursuing? What's the habit of your life? Do you put away all idols? Do you prepare for the Lord's Supper by saying, I will not, I cannot, I must not be involved in the worship of anything or anyone else other than my relationship to Jesus Christ and to Christ as Lord? Third warning. A third warning. Look at chapter 11. Verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. This is, this is the Lord again dividing, showing the differences, the separations, the need to see who are the true and who are the false. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, when you assemble, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. I'm, I'm believing the report I'm hearing. Uh, for there must be factions or divisions among you. There must be in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized, may come to the surface, may be known. This is the sifting process. This is the separating process. This is the discriminating process. Who are the true? Who are the false? And what were they guilty of here? Well, in chapters 5 and 6, they were guilty of sexual immorality. In chapters 8 and 10, they were guilty of spiritual idolatry. And here, let's call it social pride. Social pride. Notice. When you come together, verse 20, when you assemble, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. There's sarcasm there. There's irony there. They're coming for the purpose of celebrating the Lord's Supper. But he says, by what you're actually doing, don't call it the Lord's Supper. Don't call it that. What are they doing? Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Probably not the best translation. The the phrase goes ahead is probably a word that's better understood like this. You greedily devour. You sinfully consume. What are they consuming? For in eating, each one greedily consumes or greedily devours his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Verse 22, what? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What's he saying? What's going on here? Here's the background. Let me see if I can reconstruct it for you. In the history of that first century ideal of the church, they didn't have buildings like we have. And according to 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul says, now when I come and when you're worshiping the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day, elsewhere called the Lord's Day, that's why we call it the Lord's Day, it's Sunday, and they come and he says, when you come and when you're worshiping, we don't know if it was morning or evening, might have been preferably evening, when you come and according to 1 Corinthians 16, 19, Aquila and Priscilla, they had a house, they would be an example of one for whom their house was big enough to have the church, the people of God meeting in that house. And apparently what was going on in Corinth, what he's chastising them for, warning them about, is that their houses were broken up into a couple of different rooms. One of them was called a triclinium. Triclinium. And it was like what we would call the dining room. And there was a, an outer area that we might call the porch. And the porch, of course, is much smaller. And it may have been that slaves... Christians who were slaves. It may have been that those who were uh, lowly workers were relegated to the atrium area and apparently were even being left out in the eating of the very communal meal and Lord's Supper of the church. And apparently there were those in the triclinium, those who might have been either the owner of a home or wealthy enough to actually shove the poor out into the atrium and in their dining room they would have a luxuriant feast. And apparently what Paul was chastising them about was to say, you are grabbing your various meals from your nice houses and you're going to the place where the church meets and you're going into the triclinium, into the dining room and you're all just eating your own meals. It wasn't a potluck. It wasn't everybody bringing a meal so that everybody could be fed. They were making their own meals and they were putting them in baskets and they were going to the place where the church meets and they were eating and they were having communion. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper and they were having the, the love feast and they were they were taking the very poor and those who were a part of the second class community or apparently the wealthy thought and they were shoving them to the atrium and some of them weren't able to eat at all and they weren't able to drink at all and Paul hears this report and he says I'm believing the report is true there are divisions among you, and it's because of social pride. You have people in the church of Jesus Christ who don't have as much as the next person, and are you to treat them in this way? Are you to do that toward them? Are you to eat, drink, and be merry? Are you to do something in the dining room while the other believers who are supposed to be of the one body in Christ being left out in the atrium and you're not feeding and allowing them to quench their thirst? What? Look at what he says in chapter 12, in verse 25. Remember, forget the chapter divisions. 
latter part of verse 24, God has so composed the body. Remember, he's talking about the unity of the body in chapter 12, diversity of gifts, but unity of the body. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's not what was happening. And Paul gives them a third and very stern warning. Notice what he says, verse 23. For I received, this is the tradition that I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was handed over took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You don't see it coming through in the English text, but there's a word play here. You're, You're handing over this food to yourselves and not to those who need it. And the Lord, His own life was handed over. And when it was, it was a body which is given for you, all of you. Christ died for all of you. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. That was the whole point of the Lord's Supper. And He's telling them, When you come together, verse 20, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Not at all. You're making divisions. You're creating second-class Christians. And there isn't any such thing. We're all in the body of Christ. Christ has given His body and His blood for all of us. And you're supposed to, to a watching world, proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's the positive affirmation that we're all a part of the body, whether we are rich or poor, whether we have food or do not. And don't take your own basket of food and engorge yourselves and have all of the fun of the fellowship of eating. And there's a class of Christians in the atrium who aren't eating at all and aren't drinking at all. What are you doing to them? You're dividing the very body of Christ. Here's the stern warning, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Oh, my. Profaning the body and blood of the Lord? He says, because of your social pride, You are, when you come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and as soon as you put that wafer on your lips, and as soon as you drink of that cup to symbolize, to commemorate the very body and blood of Jesus Christ given for those, your poor brothers and sisters, when you partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner like that, you are guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. That's why he says in verse 28, let a person examine himself. And then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You've examined yourself. You've confessed your sin. You've said, oh Lord, what have I been doing? I've been making class distinctions in the body. 
I've been shoving people out of the way because of my pride, because I want to be known as one of the haves and not one of the have-nots. And I've taken the wealth that you have given me from your hand and I've eaten to my fill. But I have not given to those poor brothers and sisters in my own church. And I'm guilty. And I confess. I examine myself. I'm guilty, Lord. But maybe there are some of those who don't yet see it. Don't believe it. And it may be because they don't know the Lord. They're doing what they're doing because they don't know the Lord. He says, verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body that is the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, what Jesus did, what we commemorate. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You say it's pretty serious. Yes, it is. Look at verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. serious warning you say all because they simply withheld food it's a serious thing to make class distinctions in the body Christ died for all of us every sinner rich or poor young or old white or black male or female Christ died for us the first shall be last the last shall be first we all have eternal life there are no class distinctions in the church. It's repugnant to the heart of God. And if you persist, it may be the very recognizing of verse 19 that there are factions and those who aren't genuine are sick and weak and some even die the death of judgment. Verse 31, But if we... If we, the true believers, the genuine, are judged, are disciplined, uh, we see it, we're convicted by it, we respond to it. If we judge ourselves truly, if we discern ourselves truly, we would not be judged. We confess it, we forsake it. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastised, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves, Corinthians, to see whether you're in the faith. Prove it, he says. Test yourselves, or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you unless you fail the test? Apparently some in the church are failing the test. He goes back in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, when you come for the communal meal, for the Lord's Supper, Supper, and it may have even been, my friends, it may have even been that the bread was served first and then the meal and then the cup. Now, we wouldn't do that in the church here. Historically, that's not what we've done. But apparently in the early church and maybe even alluded to by what I read in Luke 22, it may have even been that the Lord's Supper was the framing of the communal meal in between. And so somebody might have had the bread. It might have been symbolically offered for the body of Christ. And then they had a communal meal and they were treating one another this way. And then they were turning right around for the ultimate framing of their day, the drinking of the cup after the way they treated Christians, the way they treated them. And the Lord says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're observing. 
Some of you are weak and ill and some of you even die because you're judged, because this is what your heart is. You haven't repented. You won't repent. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. It's not a license for gluttony. It's a warning. Don't come here for what you think is the worship of the Lord's Supper when in actuality it turns into your own judgment. This is, this is a series of three very sober warnings. And I suspect that that's the perfect way for us to be warned before we partake of this, His table. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, these warnings are shocking. These warnings are sobering. Sexual immorality, spiritual idolatry, social pride, ostracizing others for the sake of making distinctions and while we make them The Lord Himself may mark us out, make us distinct, divide us from the true because we aren't genuine, because we're creating divisions. May it not be so, Father. May we be the church in all of the ways that You command fleeing sexual immorality, fleeing spiritual idolatry, and fleeing social pride. May this examination be the very examination that determines for us, even today, where we actually stand with You. Father, for those in our midst who have been involved with these things in part. Not habitually, but in part. May we confess it, forsake it, and partake of Your table. May those of us who have not been involved in these matters exult, celebrate this Your table. And may, Father, this be something that is a clarion warning for those who are in the fellowship, but who are doing the deeds of darkness, who are immoral and idolatrous and proud. And may they be warned not to partake of this, your supper, our communion, because they're not genuine. Lord, bless us. And thank you for warning us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.